Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. One fifty-eight. Yes, the rewards we'll go into in just a bit. But I want to talk about a uh, little thing that we we didn't cover last week. And the question was by somebody, and it was a good, good question. Talking about the judgment seat of Christ, will there be shame at the judgment seat of Christ with believers who stand before the Lord? What do you think the answer is? Absolutely. So what? this is another aspect that's generally not taught because it's generally uncomfortable. And most people, they talk about the Bema Seat of Christ, the Judgment Seat of Christ, and it's a reward judgment. And, and they try... It isn't a positive light because there's no condemnation for sin. So you have to keep that category separate. You're never going to be condemned for sin at the Judgment Seat of Christ. But your works are weighed out. And they're refined in the fire. If you built with wood, hay, and stubble, we looked at on that last week. Then your works are burned up. And if you built with precious stones on the right foundation, then they are refined, and the dross is taken away. And then you have that which is left, and that's what will be rewarded. And we talked about how we're rewarded, basically on motivation, our methodologies, things like that. How sin, even though we're not condemned for that, sin plays a part in it and can affect rewards. So, then the question then is a good question of, are there going to be believers that are ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ? And the, the answer is, very much so. And it's all over Scripture, and most people don't relate it to the judgment seat of Christ. I guess the obvious book, if you ever want to understand rewards in the sense of what makes us being ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ and what makes us confident is 1 John. 1 John is typically not taught correctly. What do I mean by that? Typically, 1 John is taught in a Calvinistic way. And this is how it will be taught. The pastor will get up there and say, this book is about assurance of salvation, that this book is a test of salvation, and that John's going to go through all these little tests that if you do this, and if you do that, and if you do this, and if you do that, then that means you're saved. If that's the case, then it ignores chapter 1, because he states in chapter 1 what the book is about, and I'll show you in just a bit. But it is in this book that several times John will make mention of believers being ashamed in front of Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And so what you want to understand, the overarching theme of 1 John is the test of fellowship, not salvation. It is the test of fellowship. That is the overarching theme of 1 John. He is not asking them to doubt their salvation. He is continuing to tell them, my little children, my little children, my little children. He would not talk that way 
if he was telling them, you need to doubt your salvation. I'm telling you, that is a Calvinistic way of looking at 1 John, and it's typically mistaught that way, even by confused Calvinists. Okay? So let's turn to chapter 1 so you can get the overarching theme to see it, what I'm saying is true. If you turn to 1 John, and let's go to chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, you can just listen to me. You start if in verse 6 of chapter 1, he states the general theme. The general theme is this. If we say we have what? He's not mentioning salvation. If we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have what? Not salvation. With one another. Fellowship with one another, fellowship with God. The key verse is that one about the theme of 1 John. It is all about fellowshipping with God and fellowshipping with other believers. You have to break out of the mold, and you have to start seeing the Scriptures without reading into the passage. And, and, and obviously you can see in that passage, he's talking about fellowship, not salvation. Calvinists will make this about salvation. This is a test of salvation. It's a test of fellowship. Okay, that being the case, if you mosey on down to uh, chapter 2, verse 1, He'll say, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. My little children indicates that they are believers, and I'm writing to this, to how, do you, how you maintain your fellowship with the Lord so that you do not sin, because when you do sin, you get out of fellowship, not only with God, but with other believers. So you do see the, the ongoing theme here. Now, why am I taking you through this? Because it then will answer the question of what he's talking about in chapter 4. If you move, move on down, the test of knowing him. This is not a test of knowing Christ in salvation. It's a test of knowing him in fellowship, which is the antecedent passage already tells you. So it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship. Well, as you can see with the, the context of fellowship is... Since he's talking to believers, and believers get into sin, when you get into sin, you break fellowship. The way that you get back into fellowship is 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That's how you maintain fellowship. Not salvation, because my friends, if we're talking about salvation, we're now putting conditions on salvation. And you can't put a condition on salvation. It's a, it's a free gift by faith alone. And so, yes, uh, you know, to, to that, they have totally missed... Misunderstood 1 John 1, 9. And I've heard even people say, you only have to do that once. It's like, no, it's, it's continual, by the way, to maintain fellowship. Now, if you move down to verse 3, now by this we know that we know Him, know Him in fellowship, if what? We keep His commandments. Folks, it, it can't be salvation, because then salvation would be conditioned on our keeping the commandments. Oh, so it's belief and keep the commandments that keep salvation. He's not talking about that. It's fellowship. The way you maintain fellowship is that you keep his commandments. So that's the test of discipleship. Verse 4, he who says, I know him, not I know him in salvation, but in fellowship, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now here's where 
understanding the Jewishness of the book comes into. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. This is not equivalent to Paul's in Christ, by the way. John is using an entirely different word to refer to verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself ought also to walk just as he walked. That term, abiding in Messiah, is not a salvific term. It comes from John's Gospels, chapters 13 through 17, primarily chapter 15, when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you what? Abide in me, you will produce much fruit. That is a discipleship passage telling the disciples, from 13 to 17, all talking to the disciples, by the way. A discipleship passage telling them, abiding in me, which is a, G- a Jewish Hebrew way of saying, I am the teacher or the master, and you are the disciples. If you follow your teacher, which is abiding, or keeping my commands, then you will produce much fruit as a disciple. So it can't, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about fruit bearing. So you bridge that over into 1 John, who's the same author, and he is saying, this is the test of knowing if I know Christ in abiding in him, in fellowship in him, and if I'm going to produce fruit. And so now, now I move into where we're going at least in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, there's that term again, believers, abide, here's the discipleship term, in him, that's not a salvific term, but a, a, a discipleship term, fellowship term, here's the crux of the matter. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Therein lies the shame versus the confidence some believers will have and others won't. And what is his argument to them? If you keep his commands, you do not have to be ashamed when you stand before him. But if you do not, and you're out of fellowship with him constantly through your Christian walk, in and out, in and out, in and out, you have every right to feel ashamed and you will feel ashamed. Now, I bridge this to jump to chapter 4. And he explains this more abundantly. If you go to chapter 4, verse 16, and we have known and and believed the love that God has for us. Okay? God is love. And he who abides, abiding is a discipleship term, in love abides in God. Again, a discipleship term, which is a fellowship term, and God in Him. Okay? Verse 17. So this is... He's going to talk about how love's supposed to work out in our lives. Love has been perfected among us in this. The the idea of perfection has to go back... It goes back to 2.28, and it uses the word uh, tetelioti. It means to make an end... uh, to, to reach a goal, to 
reach an objective, and he's going to tell you what the objective is. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So there's the idea of judgment. What judgment? We're not condemned, so this is obviously the judgment seat of Christ. He's already mentioned. Okay. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment or punishment or or discipline. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, I know a lot of people use that passage out of context. Well, perfect love casts out all fear. What fear is he talking about? Not fear from the world. What's the context? Judgment. From who? Christ. In reference to fear, it's referring to Christ. So perfect love, completed love, love that God intended to happen in the believer's life, should be manifesting itself as he treats other believers, and that has been his whole argument, and you'll see this continual as we move down, when love has its way or goal in the believer, which doesn't stop at salvation, God shows you love and salvation, but he wants it to continue. And the way he wants it to continue is this, that the love he shows to you, you give it back not only to him, but you give it back to others. That's the goal of maturity, is that we give love back vertically and horizontally. And he says, if you're doing that, it will cast out all fear. Fear from who? I don't have to fear Jesus if love is manifesting through my life towards other believers and towards God. But when I get into sin, which is the topic he started in chapter 2, what does sin do? It says, I don't love you, and I don't love others. Therefore, I have every right to be afraid, because I'm going to be ashamed of myself at the judgment seat of Christ. For not loving God as I should, not treating my believers, or other believers as I should with love, and how do we know we treat other believers right? Continue reading. If someone says, in verse 20, I love God and hates his brother. Did it say the world or anything like that? It says his brother. This is within the context of the church. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't tell me, he's saying, if you hate your brother that you love God. I'm going to talk about fellowship, okay? You can't tell me you're in fellowship with God if you're out of fellowship with other believers. You're out of your mind. Now, I know what a Calvinist will say. Well, no, this is a test of, of, uh, of belief, that a believer will love other believers. And I want to say, well, you didn't, and you haven't been in the counseling room, have you? You've been spending too much time in the ivory white tower, because that's not what he's talking about. I know for a fact that other believers hate other believers. Talk to people who are getting a divorce and see how much love is between the woman and the man who are both believers and hate each other's guts. 
So that couple that I'm counseling that hate each other's guts cannot tell me as a pastor, I love God though. They can't. He's, t- he's making that argument. You can't say you love God if you hate other bu- brothers or sisters in the Lord. And you cannot say that you're going to be confident or bold when you stand before Jesus. You should be ashamed, and you will be ashamed. You should be fearing God right now, because He's going to unpack all that you did. You see his argument? Watch, continue on. And this commandment we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And how do we love? You go back to chapter 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's not about what you say to other believers. It's the deeds you do for other believers that demonstrate that you love them. And it's the truth that you deal with them in. Therein lies the basis for understanding why some Christians will be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, while others will be bold and have confidence before Christ. How so? They kept the commandments. And what are the commandments supposed to do? It's supposed to help you deal with other believers. So if you obey His commandments, you will treat other believers Good. It's that simple. It's clear as mud, right? Sure. Yeah, and, and being out of fellowship with God is exactly what you're trying to explain, that you get off the path. You're no longer on the fellowship path. The fellowship path, is it could be termed walk in the light or a walk with God. And like uh, Paul will say that in Galatians, a walk in the light. The idea of Christian fellowship is that you and God are walking along on a path together. And the believer who decides, I'm going to sin, and in this particular context, I'm going to sin in this way. I hate my brother or sister in the Lord. That's when I leave God on the path and I get off the path. So that's what, so being back on me, we're walking in the light, but at the same time, what he's talking about in fellowship. So how do I get back in fellowship when I hate other people? I confess that sin, that I have hatred in my heart. I've had this. It's wrong. I need to drop it, whether it's forgiveness or whatever, so I can get back on the path with fellowship with God and start walking again with Him. Because the longer I'm off that path, the more discipline I'm going to have. Hebrews chapter 12. He's relating this to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 that if you continue to stay out of fellowship without repenting, he's going to hammer you. He's going to discipline you. And however he disciplines you, that's how he does it in his own timing. But his discipline, he says, is, is a loving way of getting you back on the path. But the longer you stay off it, the more rewards you're losing. And the more shame you're going to accumulate as you stand before Christ at the judgment seat. So it's important for believers to always keep their fellowship with God and keep short accounts with God so they don't get off the path and get disciplined. I know, that's why no one teaches it. 
Because most Christians, yeah, this is why it's not preached, because it would scare people that, oh my goodness, I have to account for the hatred in my heart or any time I was out of fellowship with God because the love of God is not being perfected in me. The agape love that was given to me is not being expelled from me to other believers. And obviously that would include your neighbor as well, the the unbelievers as well. And it's not a feeling. This this love he's talking about in 1 John is not a feeling. It's agape, that I, I seek the best for somebody. Well, when I'm dealing with people in counseling and they're divorcing, they're lying about each other. They're making up stuff. I've had couples say, though, he molested the kids, or she did this, or he's gay, he's, uh, she's a lesbian, and just flat out make flat out lies about the person. Just flat out. And these are believers. And you say, no, they aren't. That's a Calvinistic response. Maybe, but most of them, I've known them for a long time, and they now hate each other's guts, or they hate their brother, they hate someone in their family, and it's deep hatred. You can't tell me you love God and hate other people. You can't. That's what his argument is. And if that's the case, you're going to have to answer for that one. doesn't mean you lose salvation. Not at all. He's not even talking about this. He's talking about fellowship. But you will lose rewards for not showing the love that was shown to you. And that's scary. That means that puts me on a higher plane than I thought I was on. That I have to get up here as far as how I'm treating other people. And most Christians don't think like that. They're thinking, well, I just got to account for, you know, if I slip into some overt sin or something. And they have no idea about this other thing going on. So I don't want you to come away from this with some self-imposed guilt. If God has forgiven you, then move on. But it's the people who can't get over that, that they keep going to God asking for the same thing, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, when they've already been forgiven. And when you're dealing with that, you're dealing with almost self-hatred at that point. So you're not to get into a mode of self-hatred. We make mistakes, we do sins, we, we, we do have hatred in our heart. We're supposed to confess that and then just move on at that point in time. He told them, the disciples that they would know them. How? By their love for one another. That's how he said they would recognize them as being different. That Not that, not that they would love everybody. And that, again, don't misunderstand me. There's two levels of this. Yeah, we do love the outsiders. We do the, love the unbeliever. We, we love our enemies, yes? But the, the key to evangelism is unity within a church. And as they see the unity and the love between brothers and there's no hatred, that is extremely attractive, is what Jesus was saying. They will know your believers by your unity. And that's why in his prayer in John 6, 17, he prays for them to have unity. So Paul's whole goal in most of his epistles and John's epistles Unity, 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 unity. I don't want anybody of you guys fighting. Unity, unity. And he will pound that because rewards are based on that. And that's what the, the most effective evangelism, not just simply giving the gospel, but they see churches getting along and unified. It's powerful. Because it, it's not asking the churches to have unity because obviously some could be different in theology. But... 
If you had another believer in your family or whatnot, or a friend at work that's a believer, you would be obligated to show that other believer a higher form of love than you would do the normal person. You would be required to go the second mile for that other believer at work or at, you know, some group that you're at. People should notice that you treat other believers way differently than you do the common person. There's no doubt you love them, other people, but when they see your love with another believer and what you'll do for them, that should blow them away. And that's what he was trying to get at. And that's why he's, he's, he's hammering this. Okay, so the, the two categories you have to keep in mind, this is not about acceptance. Acceptance is dealing with salvation. This is dealing with approval with Christ. Not acceptance. You're already accepted in the Beloved. This is dealing with his approval of your life. Okay, so you have 1 John, but then uh, and you have uh, uh, 1 John 4 that I showed you right here in verse um, 16 through 19, basically talking about that, that some people will be ashamed at judgment and some will be not. The other thing that can mess up rewards is apostasy, obviously. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. We see this with um, 1 Timothy 1.19. And what we talk about is Paul will say, a runner competes according to the rules of the race, and he runs this race according to the rules. So he says, I strive to not become disqualified. And he's not talking about salvation, but this idea of being disqualified means that when you don't run according to the rules, what are the rules? Theology. Proper theology. When you mess up theology, and it's willful or, or even unintentional, you lose rewards for that. You become disqualified at that point in time. So like these people who are apostatizing that you've seen, they're like, hey, Brandon, I knew this guy in his early days, and man, he was straight up theology, man. He had great theology. And now, 20 years later, he's all messed up. Right. He's apostatized. I don't doubt his salvation. What I doubt is he's going to become disqualified for the prize. And the prize is the rewards that Christ has. He will become disqualified. That's why it's important that every believer know proper theology and have their theology down. It's not acceptable just to say, well, I just don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. And go on through your whole life. I just don't know. I don't know. You're required to study it. You're required to know it and, under, and understand it. Not a, I'm not asking, and it's not asking you to have a, a theological, you know, a PhD on it, but that you have general understandings of all the major doctrines of the Bible, and you should be able to converse with people on that. And then he'll mention in for like First Timothy that he knows some people that have shipwrecked their faith. And he'll name some guys who he delivered to Satan. You're like, what, what did he mean by that? Well, he excommunicated them. Just like he excommunicated the guy in the, in, in the Corinth church. He excommunicated these guys because they had shipwrecked their faith. How so? Doctrinal. And that's his whole argument with Timothy. You know, keep the doctrine. Keep it straight, Timothy. Uh, t teach what you were taught. And so, doctrine affects things, our love for one another affects things, and so, yes, 
If someone asks you, will there be shame at the judgment seat of Christ by believers? Yes, and now you know why. Okay, any questions? There are going to be believers that grate on you, just totally grate on you, and you just can't hardly stand them. The great thing about the Greek language is it has different categories of love. And the great thing about it is the John is only asking you to agape them. He's not asking you to Philadelphia them, which is great. So Philadelphia, it, it doesn't use the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is like a brotherly love, like a friendship love that, hey, I like to hang out with them because, man, not, not only do I agape them, but I Philadelphia them because they're like a friend to me. But agape, in a stricter sense, doesn't mean that you have to Philadelphia anybody. It just means you have to seek the highest good because they might irritate you. And you don't like to be around them, and they, their personality grates on you. And so it just you seek the highest good. So you're off the hook on that. You don't have to particularly like them. You have to love them, though. And there's a difference. There's a difference. And that's and that's the the biblical way of handling it. You know, you just you you love them uh, in that sense. And so um, it's important because folks. Your fellowship to Christ is tied to it. So if you say, I want, to have, I want to have a tight relationship with Christ, I want to be in fellowship with Him and be in devotional love with Christ, then you have any hatred in your heart, it's going to become a wedge between you and Christ. You will pretend that you have fellowship and you really don't. Because He's saying, if you say that you have fellowship with God and have hatred, you are a liar, and you make God a liar, he says. That's serious talk, man. Whoa. All right, we got to take a break, and we'll come back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons, and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.